0: You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Open your Bible to Romans chapter 12. And this week, we got to celebrate one of the greatest holidays in the history of the world on Wednesday night. How many of you got way too much candy on Wednesday night as we celebrated this holiday? How many of you did not get enough? How many of you think it's impossible to get too much candy? Great, I taught my children the principle of tithing after they came home Wednesday night and trick-or-treated. And uh, I have a friend, he posted uh, how he celebrated on Wednesday night uh, with this picture. He nailed 95 Reese's to a door. Has a nice little image of Martin Luther there on the pumpkin. This holiday that I keep referring to is what? It's Reformation Day. Now, if you were thinking of some other holiday where you scare people, you're on the wrong team. Uh, We're talking about a different team here because on October the 31st, in the year 1517, Martin Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation by nailing 95 theses on the castle door at the Wittenberg Church. And in doing so, he brought a Reformation in Thesis theological precision around the terms of what we call the gospel and a few weeks ago we started this series this is the final message in this series that we've entitled nailing the gospel and I told you at the beginning of this series if I do my job right you do your job right at the end of this series you are going to be able to nail the gospel are you able to nail the gospel I told you we're going to study some history and some theology and even some vocabulary. So much of our vocabulary has revolved around this word justification, which is the declaration by God to make me legally right with him. It answers the most important question of the world. How do I get right with God? And in justification... God declares my sin belonging to Christ on the cross and declares Christ's righteousness belonging to me. See, this is theologically precise. Well, the church had kind of lost that 500 years ago, and so the Protestant Reformation brought some of this back into focus. And a way of summarizing those core doctrinal truths are what we call the five solas. Sola is Latin for the word alone. And it's these five doctrines, these five solas, that bring some theological precision to the gospel. And we've summed it up in this statement. Scripture alone defines justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Now, this morning, as we end this series, I am not going to talk to you about the Protestant Reformation. I am going to talk to you about your personal reformation can you nail the gospel are you able to do that at this point I mean we've been looking at this for like seven weeks right so we've been asking this question um, can you nail the gospel but that is not the most important question the most important question is this is the gospel nailing you I mean, it's one thing to study matters of the Protestant Reformation. More importantly, how's it going in your own personal reformation of your heart? What would it look like if the gospel started nailing you in such a way that it brought reform to your thinking and reformed to your activity? What would it look like if a Catholic priest got nailed by the gospel? What would it look like if a Catholic priest had a personal reformation? Well, let's find out. Watch this.
1: I don't know when the idea of becoming a Catholic priest actually came to me, but I suspect it was the night I was born. I was stricken with diphtheria, and I had a fever so high that I actually died. My mother spent the night in the hospital and the chapel praying, that if God would spare me my life, she would make sure that somehow, some way, I would become a Catholic priest. Whether God heard that prayer or not, I don't know. However, when the orderlies came in to take the dead bodies out of the morgue, they saw his feet kicking underneath these sheets. What they realized is that the fever did damage my hearing and the nerve endings, but I didn't die. My name is Jay Anthony and I was born in Warsaw, Poland. I grew up around South Bend near St. Adalbert's Parish. Life as a student at St. Adalbert's was very normal. Grew up just like everybody else, became an altar boy and life was good. I finally graduated from St. Adalbert's in the eighth grade and I went to St. Joseph High School. I was there for at least two, two years before I began to asked myself, how am I going to become a Catholic priest? So I finally had the courage to ask one of my associate pastors. He suggested that I attend this high school preparatory so that when I was 15 years old, I transferred from St. Joseph High School to St. Mary's Prep in Orchard Lake, Michigan. After graduation from high school, I attended the college on campus called St. Mary's College. I majored in philosophy, and all that was required of me is to get good grades and to learn a lot about the Catholic Church. Like I said, I love school. I had a passion for learning and as long as somebody paid, I stayed. Shortly thereafter, my bishop, decided to contact me and find out when have I selected a date for ordination to the priesthood. He contacted me and called me into his office in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I reluctantly had to tell him I'm not ready to be ordained. He tried to tell me that maybe I'm just going through some kind of phase, and I should just go through with it and not worry about it. I told him, well, maybe I am going through a phase, but I'm not going to go through it. Unless I find out what's missing, there is something missing in my life. All through the time I was in the seminary, I kept asking myself, what's missing? I don't know, but I know something is missing. So I asked instead if I could be assigned to a parish in the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese. So I was assigned to St. Edward's Parish, my home parish where I grew up. I began to do all the things that a priest would do except say Mass and hear confession. I baptized babies. I preached every Sunday. I counseled people who needed counseling. I buried people. Our parish was a large parish of 3,000 families. But after that year, I began to realize I still don't know what's missing. So I knew the bishop was going to contact me about selecting a date again. And reluctantly, I had to tell him, Bishop, I'm not ready. When the summer came, I decided to have a get-together of my former classmates and friends. While I was there, got to know people again, And a friend of mine stayed behind after everybody left in the evening. His name was Bob, and he attended University of Detroit Law School, and he just came back from Vietnam. And he asked me if he could share with me his testimony. I said, sure, Bob. I really didn't know what a testimony was, but yes, please do. When he came back from Vietnam, he says somebody shared with him their testimony about knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. He looked at me and he says, Jay, did you ever make Jesus Christ Lord of your life? And boom, like a bolt of lightning came flashing through my head. That's what's missing. All my life in this seminary, no professor, no priest, none of my associate pastors or students ever asked me, is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? I heard that question. I knew the answer. On Tuesday, I went to a prayer meeting with Bob, and I made Jesus Christ Lord of my life and asked him to forgive me of all my sins. Life changed for me. I was born again. I never knew the expression before. I just knew Protestants used to say that, but Catholics never did. So I began to change. Suddenly, Scripture became alive to me. I'm gonna be honest with you. I never really liked reading scripture. I didn't understand it. I only read it when I had to for a certain class. When I read scripture now, I understand scripture much more than I ever did before. Life in a local church here at Harvest has been a blessing. To have a church where they preach the word of God unashamedly, I'm finally learning much more than i ever did in a seminary about the bible and i'm so blessed by it i look forward to going church on sunday whereas before it was a duty now it's a desire it was worth all those years to try to find out what was missing in my life now that i know that jesus is lord and he's forgiven me of all my sins it was worth it because jesus is lord and i thank you for Amen. Amen.
0: Jay's always down here on the second row in the 11 o'clock service. Thank you for sharing your story, Jay. Have you ever made Jesus Christ your Lord? In reality, you don't make Jesus anything. He is Lord. better question is, Have you ever received him as Lord? Have you ever submitted your life to him as Lord? Have you responded to the gospel? Has the gospel ever nailed you in a way that brings continual reformation of your heart? Every week I get a weekly report on the reforms in Jay's heart. He just comes up and tells me what's going on in his life and this book he's reading and how God's transforming his heart. And I trust that that is happening for you as well. It's not enough to nail the gospel. You must have the gospel continually nailing you. We've been looking at the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, and we've kind of skipped around in there. We've seen these five different solas. I've asked you to open to Romans chapter 12 this morning. I want you to notice the white space between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. Do you see that part right there? There is a huge transition that happens in that white space. It's a hinge. Paul is about to tell us, what a life looks like that has been nailed by the gospel. He's about to tell us what personal reformation looks like. Based on all the things that God has done for us in justification, here's what the life looks like that has experienced reformation. And he begins in chapter 12, verse 1. what is good and acceptable and perfect. There was another Latin phrase that came out of the Protestant Reformation, and it was this phrase, semper reformanda. I told you we were going to learn some vocabulary in this series. You didn't know it was going to be Latin vocabulary, did you? So what does this term mean? It simply means this, always being reformed. Have you been reformed? Have you been transformed? What the the reformers understood is this. The church is always in need of being reformed. The Reformation never stops because every church, including this church, has a tendency to drift away from the truths of the gospel. More importantly than that for each one of us, Every person's heart has a tendency to drift away from the truths of the gospel. And what the reformers said in this statement was this, every heart is continually in need of reformation. And so we come to church for the purpose of putting ourselves under the authority of the Word of God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ so the Reformation can continue in my heart. We talked about how the word Protestant comes from the word protest. And, and we Protestants, we like to protest against things that would add to the finished work of Christ. But even more importantly than that, I have to understand that the protest really is against my own heart's tendency to disbelieve the gospel it my heart has a tendency to drift and so the battleground is not in a church the battleground is right here in my heart there's a part of my heart that doesn't want to submit to scripture alone and every time i sense that i must protest that's when i become a protestant against my own heart i I understand that my own heart doesn't really want to believe that justification is by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone because my heart wants to be its own savior. My heart is always seeking its own glory and so I have to protest and and. Preach the gospel to my heart to say that God's glory alone is what's at stake. I must protest every distortion of the gospel in my own heart. So semper reformanda means that my heart is always in need of being reformed, reshaped by the word of God. Everybody here needs a continual heart Reformation. I've got to drive a nail through all lifeless religion that my heart tends to gravitate toward. And so I would ask you this morning, is the gospel nailing you. That was the concern of the apostle Paul. He turns the corner here and moves away from all of this very deep theology, and he gets very personal and very practical. Listen to what he says. I appeal to you as a parent. You've had this conversation with your kids, right? Your hands on their shoulders, you're looking into the eye, and you're appealing to them. Listen to me. Are you listening? This is the most critical thing. You've got to get this. And this is the heart of a spiritual father, Paul, talking to the Romans. He understood how urgent this was and so he says to them, There is got to be a call that you respond to in the gospel. The gospels will simply not allow me to stop reforming. I never get to the place where I can say, All of the reforms that need to take place have taken place in my heart. I'm just resting in Jesus now, waiting for heaven. No. The the gospel continually, daily appeals to my heart. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. The word therefore is the hinge word. He's basically saying, because of the first 11 chapters of what I told you about the gospel, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's such a significant phrase. What is the motivation for reformation? Is it guilt? Is it screaming at you? Is it you know trying to manipulate you into some type of life transformation? No, Paul's appeal was by the mercies of God. What he was saying is this, the continual awareness that I have been transformed from an object of God's wrath to an object of God's mercy ought to blow my mind with the reality that I must respond to how good God has been to me. He's had mercy on my soul. He's treated me better than I deserve. He has spared me the, the eternal consequences of my sin. And so he appeals to them by the mercies of God to do something. Now, I want you to notice there is an imperative in this verse. It's the word present. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present. Present what? Present your bodies to God. He's inviting you to respond to what he has taught us about the grace of God, faith in God, Christ, the word of God, and the glory of God. Based on that, now present yourself. What does that mean? It means to yield, it means to offer, it means to give 100% everything you know about yourself to everything that you know about God. And that happens over and over and over and over. You say, well, I did that when I was six years old in vacation Bible school. Congratulations. Do you know more about God today than you knew when you were six years old? Do you know more about yourself than you do when you're six years old? Yes. Then I appeal to you, brothers, based on the mercy of God, present all that you know about you to all all that you know about God and that happens every day in every moment of my walking in this world it should be a presentation of my body to God the moment you stop presenting yourself to God is the moment the reformation of your heart stops the moment a church Stops presenting itself to God and is like, I don't think we need God anymore. We got this figured out, is the moment the Reformation stops in the church. And the gospel will not allow me to do that. It appeals to me. It makes claims on my life. And he says that we're to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Now think about those two words. It's it's a paradox, isn't it? How can something that his sacrifice be alive. Sacrifices, in the Old Testament, of course, there's this long history. It was was a word picture that God was giving us of animal sacrifice. And it was simply the the reality that the price of sin is death. And once for all, Jesus came as sacrifice the sacrificial lamb of God who once for all, atoned for the sin of all who would believe on that cross. And now he's saying, I don't need your sacrifice for sin. I need the sacrifice of your life. And I want you to live in such a way that every day your flesh is nailed to the cross. Nailed by what? Nailed by the gospel. And he wants us to live a sacrificial life. Please hear me. The Christian life is a sacrificial life. Yawn. Do you know how hard it is to communicate that in Western American culture? In a, room, in a climate-controlled room, on this nice padded chair that somebody else paid for, while you're all wearing the finest of your Amazon Prime clothing selection, <laughs> that you ordered on your $800 personalized screen. The Christian life is a sacrificial life. And if the gospel hasn't nailed you, you see no reason to sacrifice anything. My time, my talent, especially not my treasure. Now listen, here's the reality. When the gospel nails you, you you may not be able to afford the finest car. You, You may not be able to live where you want to live. You, you may not be able to go where you want to go. You may not get to watch the entertainment that you want to watch. You may not get any entertainment at all. You, God may call you to sacrifice so that other people can get the gospel that without your sacrifice, they would never have access to And Paul is telling us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm appealing to you to present yourself not as a friendly, passive friend of Jesus, but as a living sacrifice. Jesus is calling us to die daily. You want to be a disciple? Great. Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. That's a disciple. Still want to be a disciple? Or are you just... Want to be an admirer? Get nailed by the gospel, sacrificial life. How 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 did you sacrifice anything for Christ this week? Anything? Nothing? Like yeah, I came to the eleven thirty service because the nine forty five was full. Congratulations, boy! You are sacrificing so much. Right? Great. How try the eight o'clock? then you get a little more credibility with me to be a sacrificial person. Or 12.30. 12.30 would be awesome, especially for this crowd. Some of you don't come to church at 12.30 anyway. That's what we just move the service back so that it'd be on time for the rest of you. So anyway, pick a service. But the life of a Christian is a sacrificial life. It's not enough to say, I can nail the gospel. The gospel has to nail my selfish ambitions every day. The, it continues, unless you think somehow you're going to escape this thing he couldn't be that serious what's the next word present yourself as a living sacrifice holy the weightiest word in the bible we've already sung about the holiness of jesus here this morning and maybe for you you lifted your hand you're so inspired by the holiness of jesus he calls you to be holy Like, well, what does that mean? Remember, he's talking about the most practical aspects of our lives. In case you think you could wiggle your way out of that, just let your eyes go across the page. At least on my Bible, it's the next page. Chapter 13, do you see chapter 13? Look at verse 13 of chapter 13. Let's see if we can get super practical about what a holy life would look like. He says this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies. do you need a word picture on that? I'm just just let the weight of that. He's like, "Well, I would never participate in that. Do you watch other people participating in that? Yeah, that's unholy. That's not a sacrificial life. He says, not in orgies, or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The Christian life is a sacrificial life. The Christian life is a holy life. The Christian life is a distinct life from the world. That's why he says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world world. This world is a force that is trying to form your thinking. And the Christian life is one that says, I refuse to be conformed by anyone but God. If you make the choice to obey, verse 2, you are making the choice to be marginalized in this world. And some of you will not make the choice to obey verse 2 because you are so in love with the admiration of this world, you will not even sacrifice what the world's opinion of you is. If you choose not to be conformed by the world, you are choosing to be ridiculed, marginalized, and persecuted by this world. Will you make that sacrifice? He goes on and says, not that, but this, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. See the word "transform" there? It comes from two Greek words. The first word is meta. It means change. The second word is morpho. It means form, meta, morpho. Sus. Yeah, we have our English word, like a caterpillar into a butterfly. That's what God wants to do with your sorry flesh. He wants to transform it into holiness. He wants to transform your thinking. He wants to renew your mind. And that happens a little bit every day. We've talked a lot about justification. We've said that's a one-time legal declaration by God. It happens at a point in time. But that justification by faith alone, in Christ alone begins the process of sanctification, the process of being transformed into the holiness of a Christian, the the life that God gives us to, to live out in a practical way. And so we need to understand this is the Christian life. Everybody is being formed by something. You're either being conformed by the world or you're being transformed by God If you came to church this morning thinking the goal of Christian life is to be informed, wrong. It's to be transformed. And if you've forgotten about how to be transformed, you need to be reformed. You need a personal reformation in your own heart. And so, how does that happen? What if those five solas that we've talked about so much in this series began to daily nail you. What would that look like? Well, let's talk about it. First of all, Scripture alone continually reforms my tendency to live a self-governed life. My heart wants to govern itself, but Scripture alone makes a claim on the governance of my life. And if I will allow Scripture to transform me continually, it's going to make an impact on how I live my life. Personal reformation happens when I allow Scripture alone to define what I believe and to determine how I behave. I need a personal reformation when I no longer tremble at God's Word, when somehow I think I'm I know enough of God's Word, and I can, I've taught it, and I can kind of outline the major doctrines, and I just, yeah, I'm just kind of yawn your way through this book. That, that's when you need a personal reformation as you daily submit your life to Scripture alone. And when I am reformed, I delight in reading God's Word. I grow, I feed on God's Word, I obey God's Word, and I share God's Word. Secondly, grace alone. Grace alone continually reforms my tendency to live a self-righteous life. You see, grace reforms my exalted opinion of myself and somehow thinking I can contribute to my salvation, I can merit God's favor, I can earn my way to heaven. Grace alone continually reforms that self-righteous thinking. I need a personal reformation when I think I've arrived spiritually. I mean, I'm not as bad as I used to be, and look at all my accomplishments. And I mean, we're just going to pray for others today. When you fail to realize that you need the grace of God as much today to save you as you needed it on the very first day you believed, that's the moment the reformation stops in your heart. If you ever start comparing yourselves like, I'm better than that person, and I'm better than I used to be, that's when you need a personal reformation. And God's grace alone continually reforms that self-righteous thinking in my heart. Faith alone continually reforms my tendency to live a self-sufficient life. You see, faith is what activates the gospel, The gospel has no effect on the life that refuses to believe the gospel. And I am responsible to believe the gospel every time I hear it. Not just giving passive approval, but to lean in and rest on it solely because my heart has a tendency to trust itself and put faith in self. And faith is what says I am always completely, utterly dependent upon God's work in my life for anything spiritual, anything eternal. I need a reformation when I've lost that sense of desperation. And when I am reformed, I rest, rely upon God's faithfulness to His promise. And that faith begins to produce good works in my life that flow from a dependence upon God. Every day, the gospel reforms my heart. Number four, Christ alone. Remember we talked about that? Christ alone continually reforms my tendency to reduce Christianity to ceremonial religious activity. Christ calls me as a disciple to follow him. That means a close, personal relationship every day. And I need personal reformation when I begin to depend upon religious activity or processes or meetings or what happens up here on the platform to give me a sense of spirituality. No, my sense of spirituality comes from being filled with the Spirit of Christ and trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross on my behalf when I compartmentalize my relationship with Christ to what happens like in a building or in a small group or even like sitting and reading my Bible, if I compartmentalize my life to that, that's when the Reformation stops in my life. But when I'm Reformed, I I love talking to Jesus. I love hearing from Jesus. I love adoring Jesus. I love telling other people about Jesus. Personally, not because I have to, because I want to. It's like what Jay said in the video. It's like, it became not a duty, but a desire. That's what happens to the life that's been reformed by Christ alone. It becomes personal relationship. And then God's glory alone continually reforms my tendency to live for my own glory. God's glory reforms my worship. And I need personal reformation when God's glory no longer captures my attention. When I'm more prone to glorify created things than the creator who made them. I need personal reformation when I seek my own glory rather than God's. I need reformation when I am unmoved in worship and unstirred by the glory of God. When you can passively Go through the motions of worship and think those people up there on the stage or those really crazy people down front in the first five rows, those are the worshipers and I'm just here for, I don't know why I'm here. Then you've lost the sense of God's glory. But when you are brought to your knees with the continual awareness of the glory of God, we live our lives eating and drinking and driving and walking and playing and spending and saving for the glory of God. It's what the Reformers called living before the face of God, quorum day. living before the face of God, understanding I am always in the continual presence of a glorious God. Do you need a reformation of the heart? Would you allow those five solas to nail you every day so that the Reformation continues semper reformanda for the rest of your life? How does that start? How do you start a Reformation? Martin Luther was good at starting a Reformation. He just grabbed a hammer and nail and wrote some stuff and nailed it. that's That's a good way. That needs to happen in my heart. We read about a Reformation that happened that... Protestant Reformation triggered by Martin Luther was sparked on October the 31st, 1517, 501 years ago. But there's actually another Reformation that's recorded for us in our Bibles. It happened 2,473 years ago. And we find a little account of it in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9 just gives us this little snapshot of what God did to trigger a reformation among the people of Israel. They'd been in captivity because of their immorality and their disobedience to God. God brought them out, and He sparked this reformation that happened so long ago. And this is what the Scripture says in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and earth on their heads. Now, just get a picture of that, okay? They were fasting. Why were they fasting? They were making a declaration. We are so hungry for God. We're so desperate. It was a sign that, that God, in a sense, was missing, and, and they, they didn't have the hunger the way that you would miss the way that you would sense hunger if you missed a meal. So you know what they did? They wanted their hunger to remind them of how hungry their soul was for God. Second thing they did is they dressed in sackcloth. They, they found the ugliest clothes they could find. They put them on. Some of you did that this morning. And uh, that's a sense. Like, why did they do that? They did that because they, they understood that, like, we are, our sin is so ugly before God. We can't look better on the outside than we perceive ourselves to be on the inside. And so they wanted their outward to reflect their inward. And the third thing they did is they put earth on their heads. Now just get a picture of that. It's like they, they felt so bad about their condition. They got as low as they could, low to the dirt. They wanted to get under the dirt. So symbolically they put dirt on top of themselves because that's how they, they sense their dirtiness before God. All of that is what? It's a sense of humility before God. It's a sense of desperation before God. So the first step in a reformation of the heart, you want to start a reformation in your own heart? Humble yourself. Here's the second thing they did. The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins. They separated themselves. What they had done is they had become indistinct from the world. They had just been conformed to the world, spoke the language of the world, enjoyed the world's entertainment. Their sexual preferences were like the world, and and it was all just mixed up. They were no longer distinct. You know what they did? They separated themselves. It became distinct. It's a picture of repentance. They repented before the Lord. You want to start a reformation? Number one, humble yourself. Number two, repent. Thirdly, what did they do? They stood and confessed their sins. Confession of sin simply means you're agreeing with God about what He said about your sin. You ever been convicted by God about your sin? That's God's Holy Spirit saying, you sinned. If you look back at Him, it's like, no, I didn't. You're not confessing. You're arguing. Confession says to God what God says to me about my sin. I say the same thing as God. God says, I've sinned. Yes, God, I've sinned. Humble yourself. Repent confess sin. The next thing it says is they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord. They returned to the Word of God, Scripture alone, to bear weight on their soul. It says that they, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day You think services at harvest are long, quarter of the day, and then for another quarter of it, they made their confessions. And fifthly, what did they do? They worshiped the Lord their God. They abandoned their hearts to God. They surrendered. They exalted Christ above all. You want to start a personal reformation in your own heart? Humble yourself. Repent, confess your sin, return to the word of God and worship him, abandoning your life to the only one who is worthy of your worship. I find this so interesting that he gave us such a specific time stamp on when this happened. Do you notice it says on the 24th day of this month. Now, in the context, we find out that it was actually the seventh month. But this was using the ancient Hebrew lunar calendar. The English Standard Version actually preserved for us just that literal translation. There's another translation of the Bible. It's called the New Living Translation. I really like it. it puts it a little more simple And the New Living Translation actually converted the ancient Hebrew lunar calendar into our Gregorian calendar. And so when you read this verse in the New Living Translation, Nehemiah 9, chapter 1, reads like this. On October the 31st, the people assembled again. God loves to start reformations on or about October 31st. <laughs> Do you need a reformation of the heart? Has the gospel nailed you in such a way that you can't escape? The scripture alone defines justification by grace alone through faith Alone, In Christ alone. For the glory of God alone. I want to invite you to stand with me right now. I want you to bow your heads. Close your eyes. I'm going to give you a moment just to respond in faith. Every time we hear the gospel, we're responsible to repent and believe again. I never get to the place where I can say there's no longer any need for reform in my own heart. Did you spend this week or maybe this last decade being conformed to the world? Would you like to present yourself as a living sacrifice to God so that he can continue the work of transformation and reformation in your heart? Would not you tell him that right now in your own heart? say, Lord, I've been so swept up in this world's values and opinions and entertainment. I recognize that my thinking is not like your thinking. My values are not like your values. And wherever I've been conformed, Lord, I offer to you my mind, my body, my soul. Fresh new ways. Start a reformation in my own heart. Let it continue. I abandon all of me to all of you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your finished work on the cross. And I pray that that would never become stale to us the fact that you would love us enough to transform us from objects of wrath to objects of mercy i pray that you would continue to reform my heart the hearts of my friends this church so that your glory could be seen and known individually and corporately to our community that is so dark god would you shine bright through your people, through your church as we abandon ourselves to you in fresh new ways. In Jesus' name, amen.